In the past, I have known pastors who like to interject into their sermons a bit of levity, a bit of humor, a bit of uh, something to break the monotony of, of what might be a hard teaching. At a church that I used to work at a few years ago, there was this gentleman who every time he would get a chance to speak, he had a printed out sheet of jokes that he had gotten via email. He would go up to the pulpit and just begin reading these jokes that he admitted had absolutely nothing to do with his sermon. He would just go up there and just start reading, what do you get when you take a whatever and a whatever and mix them together, whatever, and the people would just kind of sit there much like you're doing and maybe give a courtesy laugh or, or not, but then he'd say, okay, enough of that, now we're going to get into the Bible. Sometimes I've tried to do that by way of telling what I believe to be funny stories that are oftentimes proven to not be funny stories. Um, I was at Crew this past week, and I, I introed it with a story of me as an eighth grade basketball player uh, on homecoming night. The stands were filled with about 300 or so people, and my claim to fame in that game was I got hit right in the crotch with a basketball from about 30 feet. Uh, it was a baseball pass, and it just laser beamed right on in there. Uh, I, f I fell to my knees, my shoe came untied, my coaches went and circled around me and ushered me off the court. So I was like surrounded by people, I was crying, my one friend was laughing, uh, it was not good. I went to the back into the training room, a nurse uh, came in and she was pretty to the point. She said, if you start peeing blood, let me know. And I, the tears, like I started weeping. It wasn't until, just to be honest with you, it wasn't until the birth of our son Abram where I really felt like things were okay. Um, it was, a, it was a, a waiting period of a good, you know, 20 years or so before we could just confirm that no real damage had been done. Um, but I, I, I tried to, like, interject some of that uh, into talks from time to time. This, this one is, is not one of those. Uh, at certain times, you know, when, when Jesus teaches, uh, specifically in, in John, people leave kind of sad because they say, that's a hard teaching. Who, who, can, who can accept that? And I want to kind of preface what we're talking about this evening in the sense of this is, this is a hard teaching, although realistically this is one that I uh, have been living for the last three or four or five years. I feel like if, if a life verse was ever uh, to be claimed by me, it would be embedded within this passage that we're going to be looking at this evening. This is Mark chapter 9 beginning in verse 14. It says, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us 
and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. So last week we talked about a text that is uh, traditionally known as the transfiguration. Jesus has taken three of his main disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they have ascended this mountain for a time perhaps of prayer, for a time perhaps of, of respite, where Jesus has been wanting just to get away from what has been going on for chapters now throughout the book of Mark. Wherever he goes, there is a great crowd that just wants to be near him, that at times wants him to perform miracles, that wants to hear his teachings, Wherever Jesus is, people seem to be in close proximity. And here we have seen Jesus wanting to just go away and be with his people. In this story, Jesus is with Peter, James, and John, and it says that he transforms or he is transfigured where his clothes begin to glow this bright white. Other gospel accounts talk about Jesus' face and body glowing as well, and the disciples, as they sit there, are seeing Jesus transformed into this different version of himself, and on either side of him is Moses. For the Jewish people at this time, Moses was like the landmark figure of their faith. Moses was the guy that took Israel out of Egyptian servitude and slavery and led them into freedom, into hope, into a new life. Moses was also the figure that ascended a mountain to commune with God and to receive the law, and Moses was also one that after spending time with God, he became illuminescent. He was radiating so much so that when he came back down to the people, they asked him to cover his face. On the other side of Jesus was Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of Israel's history. More than that, Elijah was also the figure that was supposed to return so that the end could be ushered in. And Jesus, as he is flanked with Moses and Elijah and his disciples are seeing this, a voice says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. It's this, this moment for the disciples to learn yet again who Jesus is. Is. It's this very much mountaintop in a literal and figurative way, mountaintop experience where things just kind of seem very clear and, and they're, they're seeing Jesus in a new way. Even at that, at that time, they didn't quite get it. Peter wanted to create these little shrines for the three of them and also, almost make Jesus and Moses and Elijah equal, and that wasn't the point. But they have this, this moment that at least last week I was arguing was kind of a benchmark that they could look back to and understand who Jesus was. I know for some of us, whether it's a Young Life camp or something in your past where you have these spiritual moments where you just seems like God is not out there somewhere, it seems as though God is right next to you and you can hear him and you can sense where he is leading you. And there's nothing harder than leaving that moment and then going back to real life. 
I used to teach at Salisbury Christian School, and every year the students would go on a missions trip, and they would always come back and say, that was the best trip of my life. I can't believe all the things that I learned and how I grew, and, and I, just, I just felt God's presence. But you could see once they got back into the regular routines of school, for many of them, not all of them, but for many of them, it started to fade. And they just were taken over by the tests and the stress and the relationship issues and the stuff that they have with their parents and the work and the sports and the anxiety and the school and all this stuff seemed to take that mountaintop experience and mute it a little bit. In this story, we also have a descent. We have Jesus and his three disciples going down into a situation where people are arguing. Jesus and Peter, James and John are kind of walking and they see the other disciples having a dispute with this large crowd. They begin to wonder what's going on and it prompts Jesus' question, what in the world is happening? But you can see a literal descent from the mountain and a figurative descent from this spiritual moment back into real life. And it was difficult for the disciples to kind of make heads or tails of what was happening here. The scene is set where a dad is trying to save his kid. A dad who loves his son ostensibly, at least he's going to Jesus to to try to fight for him to have a chance. We've seen this theme throughout the book of Mark where parents show up for their kids. Uh, In Mark chapter Five, we meet a man named Jairus who is introduced as a synagogue leader, one of status, one of importance. And as he sees Jesus, it says that he comes forward and he falls at his feet and he pleads with him saying, my daughter is about to die. Please come and just place your hands on her. This person of status and notoriety in this, in this context is just putting it all on the line and just laying down before Jesus as if to say, this is the only option I have left. Just please put your hands on my girl and she'll be okay. A couple chapters later in Mark chapter seven, we meet a Syrophoenician woman. She's a foreigner. And she has this interchange with Jesus where she's begging Jesus to cast a demon out of her daughter, and Jesus has this very strange response where he says, the children have to be fed first. It isn't right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. But that doesn't stop her from arguing on behalf of her child. She says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Give me the crumbs. Help my daughter. Do what it is that you can do. This isn't too hard of a parallel for us to see, for those of you that have kids especially, but even for those of you that don't, you can understand that this person that is under your care and under your responsibility, you would do whatever you could do to help them. You would do whatever you could do to put them before Jesus and seek healing. For us in the 21st century, it's always not that, that simple, but we see how parents are devoted to their kids. In a, in a strange way, we see how they're devoted to their kids because they throw them in the back of the van and they cart them from travel tournament to travel tournament to travel tournament and they just invest nonstop in their kids and it becomes like this thing that just consumes them. We also see on a, on a more heavier level, we see parents that are dealing with the sickness of their children. And they're going to doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor to try to find some form of healing. 
On a completely different level, we see single moms that are working two, three, four jobs just to pay the bills so that their kids don't have to go through what she might be going through. We've seen parents invest in the lives of their kids, and it doesn't take too much to see this dad at the very end of his rope just asking the disciples to do something. He says to Jesus, teacher, I brought you my son. It's interesting that he says this because up to this point, he's only been talking to the disciples. I think that's important, but we'll come back to that in a second. I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Most scholars, when they hear this list of symptoms, they would define the ailment of this individual as epilepsy. For a 21st century American, we can kind of see that and read that back into the story, but for for an ancient audience, what was happening here is everything was a supernatural issue. This was Jesus versus the powers and the principalities of evil. So if anything was wrong, it would usually be taken up with demonic oppression. In this context, what they saw was the power of the enemy was taking over the poor little body of this kid and Jesus had the power potentially to do something about it. And the point of this passage is not to get into what kind of illness did this person have or what was really going on, but the point of this passage is to see Jesus as the one who is vanquishing supernatural foes that were powerful enough to defeat everyone else. In a sense, what we learn here from this text is Jesus is different than other people, and Jesus is, like he was on the mountaintop, glowing and demonstrating himself to be one with power. He was going to show that in a very real and tangible way in the next few verses as this story will unfold. The disciples, on the other hand, could not do this. Now, this is interesting because in Mark chapter three, what Jesus had done was he had selected 12 disciples to be with him, it says. And he also selected them so that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. All throughout the book of Mark, there's this subtle theme of Jesus versus the demons, and he enlists his disciples in that activity as well. In Mark chapter six, we've actually seen how the disciples at times have 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 done this. It says, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over the impure spirits. They went out and they preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. But here, they cannot. Imagine just for a second, and I don't want to psychoanalyze the text here, but just imagine for a second being a disciple who has had success in the past, who has been able to heal and been able to be used, and now here in this moment, you can't. Imagine what's going on in their minds where they know that Jesus has sent them out and given them authority and and allowed them to be these instruments to be used mightily for him, but then for some reason, they just can't seem to do it. Jesus responds harshly to his disciples and also to the crowd around saying, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? The underlying subtext there is not much longer. Because all throughout these last couple of chapters, what Jesus has been saying is, I'm going to die. And then in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. Jesus has his time on his life where it's, it's all leading to the cross. It's all leading to Jesus sacrificing himself for the world. 
and he's wanting desperately his disciples to get it, but he responds in somewhat exasperation and frustration, bring me the boy. N.T. Wright says that up until now it has been comparatively easy to follow Jesus, but from here on it's going to be harder and harder for the disciples to follow Jesus. The stakes are getting high now because their allegiance to him has ramifications for their own personal safety. It has ramifications for how the state or the Roman Empire or how the religious leaders are going to see them and them following Jesus is going to cost them something. There's, there's modern parallels here with us. N.T. Wright continues, people today often suppose that the early years of a person's Christian pilgrimage are the difficult ones and that as you go on in the Christian life, it gets more straightforward. People assume that the most difficult part of following Jesus is turning your back on the life that you used to live, saying no to the sins perhaps that have bound you up into this point, saying no to that group of friends or those parties or those people or what have you. And once you can just figure that out, then it's all smooth sailing and following Jesus is easy breezy. It doesn't seem to be the case though where, where that's actually what happens in real life. And T. Wright says the opposite is actually the case where Sometimes making that initial decision is the thing that, that is easy and then actually living it out consistently over time is what is so difficult. It's difficult for a few different reasons. The first reason is sometimes reading the Bible is difficult, not just in the sense of you, you open it up and you end up in Ezekiel and there's all kinds of crazy stuff happening, but it's difficult because of the things that it says were written so long ago that for some of us it's, it's hard to figure out what in the world it's actually saying. At times it's also difficult because it seems like one text is saying one thing and another text is saying another thing and they're both kind of like in tension and there's this, this struggle between different things that are going on in the Bible and that can be difficult for us at times. But I think what's even more difficult than all of those academic or theological questions is when you see the Bible not work in the way that you think it should, when you pray and God is silent for something that you think is his will. When you pray for healing, and if you're looking at the, the book of James, it says that the prayer of faith will heal this person, and then that person dies. When real life hits, it makes it difficult to understand what's going on. It makes it difficult to continue to pledge your allegiance to a God who seems silent and absent and uninvested text continues, when the spirit saw Jesus, when that spirit that was uh, taken over this boy's life, when it seized Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth, and Jesus just kind of enters into this little dialogue with the father, which I think is kind of strange. You've got the kid over here convulsing and foaming at the mouth, and Jesus says, oh, how long has he been like this? What's going on? It's crazy. Oh, he's fine. What's, what's happening? You know, it's like Jesus kind of in this little aside to dad saying what's going on. And some people have said that that can help him to diagnose what's actually going on. And other people would say that the fact that the dad says it's from childhood, that it shows you how, how difficult and how long and expansive this ailment has been and that Jesus heals it. It kind of ups the ante with how cool this is. But the dad responds with, from childhood, it's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, and this is neat, take pity on not my boy, but take pity on us. 
Sometimes I think we forget the suffering of the parent that's involved in the life of this kid that they love. Sometimes that's health stuff, but then you also have other, other seasons of life where someone's child might be involved in a lot of stuff that the parent would hope that they wouldn't be involved in, and the emotional turmoil and the things that, that happen there. Um, this language of, of have pity on us and help us is interesting because it's not just freeing the son. This is also a miracle that will free the dad and the family from all of the stuff that's happening here. Jesus kind of launches into this one line though and says, if you can, if you can. This is strange because Jesus kind of has, has locked into dad saying, how long is this happening while the kid's over here um, struggling and then has this theological conversation with dad saying, if you can, what's that kind of business? What do you mean if you can? Everything is possible for the one who believes. Scholars are split right down the middle on if this is referring to the faith that Jesus has, the believing that Jesus does on behalf of the kid, or if this is actually the faith of the guy. In the story, it seems to lend credence to the second of those two, the faith of the dad, because he responds with these iconic words where he says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe, but then there's this part of me that doesn't believe. We go back to this family. I do believe you, Jesus, but everything that's happening in my life right now with my kid is demonstrating something to be opposite of what you've promised. I do believe you, Jesus. I've been reading your word, but everything that's happening to me right now and the, the trajectory that my kid is on and the health issues that my kid has, the way that I per perhaps have been fighting, scrapping tooth and nail and nothing is changing. I've been working five different jobs to pay for what's going on and I just can't seem to get a break. I do believe you, Jesus, but I don't believe you at the same time because the way that I have seen this work out has not been the way that people keep telling me and the church keeps telling me and my parents keep telling me and whoever else keeps telling me. I do believe you, but I need you to do something. I need something to happen here so that I can continue to believe. It's this, this dichotomy of belief and unbelief that's happening here. And for some folks, it's very personal and it's very much about what's happening in their life and how it doesn't seem like it's working or the Christian faith or the things that you've heard, it doesn't seem like it's all falling into place. And for others of you, it's completely academic, it's completely philosophical, it's all up here and you're just struggling with the questions of, does God even exist? Is this all real? Bad pastor confession. At times you're driving down the road and you just wonder if this is all something that's real or if this is just a big game. Sometimes you're reading scripture and you're just fighting for understanding because the people that you know don't seem to fit in the categories that scripture is telling you and you say, is this even right? I do believe, but help my unbelief. For some of us, we've grown up in this Christian world for so long that the things that you have understood to be true about God do not seem to be the things that God is showing himself to be to you. The ideas that you once had that have been ingrained into you from the very early stages of your life, from Sunday school on up, I've told you those little anecdotes of me hanging out with Miss Pat, that ridiculously old Sunday school teacher putting us on a donkey with carpet and wooden wheels and like pushing us around the room and we're singing all these crazy songs like that's where I live but when you see that when you're 
13, 14, 15, 20, 30, almost 34 years old. It doesn't always look like Miss Pat's room where you're just kind of floating around on a donkey with wheels covered in carpet because life is hard. And at times the things that you pray for and at times the things that you think that you know don't seem to hold water anymore. I do believe help my unbelief. That line makes such sense to me because this dad had just seen his kid suffering for years from childhood and he couldn't do a darn thing about it. And here he sits with the people that he thought was going to do something, but they couldn't. And now he's standing in front of Jesus saying, I do believe, but help me. Help me understand what that actually means and what that actually looks like. Joel Marcus is a commentator on the book of Mark, and he says the father of the epileptic boy is therefore in this double-mindedness, this I believe but help my unbelief. He is a perfect symbol for the Christian disciple. I did not hear that when I was a kid. The perfect symbol of a Christian disciple was one that did not ask questions, that did not have doubts. Their faith was resolute. There was nothing that could ever be thrown against us that would ever make us stumble or fall. But what this guy is saying, this is actually what it looks like. I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. He says, whereas logically faith and unbelief are opposites, complete polar opposites, in the Christian experience, they are simultaneous realities. At this place, we have tried to make a space for people that have doubts and that have questions, whether they are academic, whether you can break out the text and say, what do you do with this versus this? Or how do you read this and what's going on here? Or what do I do with my friend that doesn't seem to fit into these categories? Like, if you have those questions, we, we understand that and we celebrate that. And we want you to have a place here at the table. And we do not believe that, this, that that disqualifies you from following Jesus with everything that you have. We also understand that for some of you, it's not academic. It's I can't square this stuff that you're talking about with my upbringing. The prayers that have gone unanswered, the abuse that I've felt at the hands of my parents or my teachers or whoever else, it doesn't seem like anyone is intervening or advocating for me and that doesn't seem to make sense. And what we have tried to do here is to create space for you to process and for you to try to understand who Jesus is in the midst of the hurt and the pain and the questions that just don't seem to go away. One of my former professors says, Doubting God is painful and frightening because we think we are leaving God behind. But we are only leaving behind the idea of God that we like to surround ourselves with, the small God, the God that we control, the God who agrees with us, and doubt forces us to look at who we think God actually is. For some of you, it's this bubble, it's this box, it's all this thing that you thought God was, but then when life shows up, it doesn't seem to fit anymore, and you're left with the decision in your mind of either, well, I guess I could walk away, or I guess I could just bury my head in the sand and not think about this and just follow this picture of who I think God actually is. But I want to, to propose that there's a third way for you to hold both of these things in tension for you to see that maybe this stuff that you held over here is wrong, for you to see maybe this stuff over here that you once thought was true 
isn't quite as cut and dried as you thought it was, to, to see that maybe God is calling you into a new understanding of who he is. And I want to tell you from personal experience that that is hard. Because at times you feel like you're walking away from everything. One of my favorite Kate stories, and I meant to clear this with you, I'm sorry, but from the look on your face, I can sense that you are excited about this. <laughs> on our honeymoon, which started off in the very romantic uh, town of Denver, Colorado. It was very beautiful. Then we flew into Aspen. And this sounds like, okay, this is total like whatever. And then we, we ended up with my family in the Bahamas because they used to go to this place called Atlantis. It's a ridiculous little resort where it just, it's not real life and you're, you're there and your biggest struggle is whether or not to go down this water slide, which is called the leap of faith. Kate and I are in line, and you know this is a typical water slide. You gotta go up a lot of different levels, and Kate is not the ride enthusiast that I am. Side note, one time we were at Bush Gardens, and we were riding Apollo's chariot. And for those of you that don't know Apollo's chariot, it's a row of four across. So it's Kate, and then, well, it's me, and then Kate, eight-year-old girl, eight-year-old girl's dad, Kate, from the very beginning, as soon as the thing locks, she starts to cry. Eight-year-old girl looks over and says, it'll be okay. <laughs> we had another sort of similar situation there where we are ascending the stairs of the leap of faith, and once you get to the very top, there's a red light and there's a green light, and the idea is you get in the water slide, and when the red light goes to green, then you go down the chute. Well, Kate got into this, this, this little, like, I don't know about this. I'm not sure about this. I don't think I can do it. And she's like ready to go. And behind me is this pretty big guy who's like, probably said something ridiculous like, man, you better get your woman in check, something like that. <laughs> to which I responded, Kate, you need to go down the slide. Come on, you need to get down the slide. <clears throat> Kate just had this, this moment of like panic. There was really nothing I could do to help because I, I, I wanted her to go down the slide because I thought it was fun and I thought she would have fun. She did end up going down the slide. I don't think she had a great time with it. But sometimes, like, that's what this is. It's you're sitting in this space of pure and utter fear because you don't know what's going to happen. You know that your next logical move is to continue on, but you don't know where you're going or what you're doing or how it's going to end up for you. I think that for some of us, we've been sold this idea that for Christians, it's easy and it's clear and everything is just straight and narrow. But I don't think that's real life. I think when the stuff hits the fan, you end up looking at that green light saying, I don't want to go because I don't trust you. I don't want to go because everything that I have leading up to this point scares me. For the Christian in that moment, the most beautiful thing that we can do, I believe, is just go. In the Psalms, what we see are the, these, these psalmists that say, God, you're terrible. You're not showing up in my life, but I'm going to trust you because I believe that you're good. And I believe that things can change, and I believe that you will be who you say that you will be, even though everything around me is chaotic and difficult. I don't believe that everything is quite as cut and dry, and I think for sometimes that 
perfect symbol of faith is I believe. There's a big part of me that doesn't. And what I'm gonna choose to do now is go down the slide and pray that you're there with me. This miracle, the way that it happens is is when Jesus sees this crowd, he begins to have this impetus to to action. Um, He calls to the spirit, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. I thought this was interesting because in an ancient context, what would happen is in these exorcisms, a lot of times people would place something in the way of the person that was possessed in order for them to have proof that the spirit actually leaves their body. So for example, this is a first century historian named Josephus. He's talking about a guy named Eliezer who would often place a cup or a foot basin full of water a little way off and then command the demon to come out. And as the demon comes out, it would overturn and make known to the spectators that he had left the man. Same thing in in Mark chapter five where Jesus throws out multiple demons from somebody and they go into a large herd of pigs. Demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them, so he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out, went into the pigs, the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned, and I just have to think that that's a sight to be seen. You're off to the side doing your other farmer duties, and then you see 2,000 pigs running and jumping off a cliff. It just seems strange to me. But in this particular instance, the spirit shrieked, it convulsed this boy violently, and then came out, and the boy looked as if he was dead, And Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him to his feet and he stands up. We don't hear a lot from this boy. We don't hear his his reactions. We don't hear how he assimilated back into the life of the community. But for someone in this particular context that had been struggling with these oppressions and illnesses, they would have been completely ostracized and alienated. But now Jesus has brought healing and life. This is a resurrection story of sorts that that looks and feels a lot like Mark chapter five. Remember that guy Jairus, who's the synagogue leader who is trying to get Jesus to heal his daughter. On the way to their house, somebody comes up and says, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Just leave Jesus alone, it's not gonna happen. And Jesus says, continue to believe. And they end up at the house of Jairus and his daughter and Jesus again takes a couple of his disciples up into this room and he goes to this little girl and he says, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. She was dead but Jesus treated her as though she was sleeping and just kind of puts his hands on her and says, it's time to get up now. And we see here in this text again, Jesus being like the the dad figure that just goes and wakes up the boy. He's not dead, but he's in such a state where there's nothing that can help him and no one that can help him except for Jesus who shows up and touches him, restores him, and allows him to be back into the community. There's three points that we can take away from this story, and I'm sorry that's been a little bit longer than usual. The first point, Jesus is able, and no one else seems to be When the disciples can't do the work, Jesus is able. I hope that for some of you that's not just the cliche thing that you expect to hear in church. I know that it can be, especially when you're in the middle of the stuff. But I hope that you can at least let that resonate in your minds and think perhaps that Jesus will demonstrate himself to be one who is powerful and one who is loving and one who is good. 
in the midst of that, even though Jesus is able, I put sometimes in parentheses because I think that it's just a given. We doubt. We have things that we struggle through, whether they're academic, philosophical, theological, whatever, or it's just real life doesn't seem to go with what it is that we're thinking and feeling and, and the things that we've been taught. And I want to submit to you that not only is that okay, I believe that in those moments of doubt, God is drawing you to himself in a new and fresh way. Where you might be leaving the confines, the comfortable confines of your youth, but you're moving into new understanding, new identity, and new purpose. And then finally, Jesus in this story seemingly has chosen to use us, to use his disciples, to use people to do the work. At the very end of the story, they say, why couldn't we do this? And he says, this is a different sort that can only be cast out by prayer. It's interesting because Jesus in the healing, he doesn't pray. It seems as though this is a teaching that's meant for the disciples when he would leave and they would go and do the work. Potentially, it's also meant for us when Jesus would leave and we would go do the work. Last thought, for some of you, you're desperately waiting for Jesus to show up. And the way that I think that he often does that is through me and through you and through his people that have eyes to see those who are hurting and broken and we meet the need to see the people on the water slide that do not want to go down and we say, I'll meet you at the bottom. To be with people in the midst of those difficult situations through death and divorce and brokenness and shame and hurt and guilt. And we become the hands and feet of Jesus that can minister to people in the lowest of lows. I hope that this radical, inclusive, accepting, forgiving love of Jesus is so radically transforming you from the inside out that the world can no longer deny that he exists because they see him in us. They see him in our passion and our drive and our love for people. I hope that as we leave here that we are challenged not just to be comfortable with where we are but to move even through doubt and even through those moments of difficulties to find Jesus, to trust him and to live in a way that he is asking us and inviting us to live. Let's pray. God, that's a lot of stuff. I ask that just even some of it would make sense to me, to these people, to us, that we would be gracious to ourselves, that we would understand that you love us even in the midst of our questions, that you are so big that you are not afraid of the things that we ask or the doubts that we have, but you can demonstrate yourself to be powerful and loving and good even in the midst of those things. For the people in the room this evening that are in the midst of difficulty and despair and suffering, I ask that you would show up and that you would use us to do that work. For the people that are in this room that are comfortable and life is good, I ask that you would help them to not be so focused on themselves and to share that love and goodness with the people around them. God, I ask that you would continue to transform us, that you would help us to see your son Jesus in a new and fresh way where he is able to overcome the things that are set up before us. And we ask that through the power of your spirit, we would feel empowered, encouraged, and we would feel as though we are not alone. 
We ask these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.